For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Welcome back to the Drake cast, folks. More specifically, welcome back to the third and final chapter of the Road Trip miniseries, which tracks the adventures of Paul, Rex, and I while we traversed the country with the Fly Fishing Film Tour. We left off with some big rainbows in Michigan, but we're going to start back again with Paul and Rex in the Midwest. So you just want to say the cities and then like some of the fishing that you did? Where did you leave us? I left you in Madison. Madison. Yeah, so, so then we went to... We went to Green Bay after Madison, which was great, um, but there was no fishing there. Beautiful theater, uh, tight lines, amazing fly shop. And then um, after that, we headed to uh, Minneapolis. Minneapolis, then to then St. St. Louis. Louis. Well, that that was when everything started to change. So, <laughs> so that's yeah. that was when everything really started taking a, a turn for the better. After Elliot left us, we were kind of at this lull. And then, even though we had an epic time in Minneapolis, um, and and also a great time in Green Bay, it was pretty cold, and and there wasn't much fishing. Uh, but Rex and I had decided to contact uh, a couple of uh, people that are super fishy that we know through Elliot. And through our friend Connor at Sims, uh, we ended up planning out a musky uh, trip. We're gonna go fish a river down in Tennessee, and that was honestly one of the one of the coolest experiences on the entire entire trip for me. So in terms of fisheries, drive four hours after our show, and just to get some time under our belt, and then drive another three hours at the crack of dawn so we could fish. Like a half day, two thirds of a day type of thing with Chris Willen and Jimmy Dobes, who operate out of Tennessee. These guys are uh, one is a full time muskie guy who literally spends more than 200 days on the water targeting muskies. And for anyone that really loves to fish, I mean, you understand dedication, but to target a species of fish that you rarely catch, especially using the methods on, you know, targeting fish on giant flies with super heavy sink tip lines. I think that it's like one of the most interesting fishing personalities I've met in a long time. And then Jimmy Dobes is also a really well-known striper guide in the area who's also a Sims rep. I started off in a boat with Chris and Rex started off in a boat with Jimmy. I mean, one of the cooler fisheries I've personally seen. I mean, it, it, so it started off with Jimmy dropping his boat because Paul and I drove to the river with him and he went to go pick up Willen and basically run the shuttle. And Jimmy was like, hey, just go ahead and back row up into this hole just upstream. It's pretty slow. You guys have no problem. Keep an eye on river right. Like, you might see a fish up there. And Paul and I were like, but whatever. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, you, don't, you don't even catch muskie. Like, there's no, you're not going to, we're not going to see one the first five minutes we're on the river. And lo and behold, we just finished tying on a fly that, like, we didn't. I was, was like, Rex, so, musky, musky, right side of the boat. And he goes, don't move. <laughs> and I, Rex, like, tied on a knot quicker than I've ever seen anyone tie. This giant, like, seven and a half, eight inch streamer. And just, like, we threw it, you threw it in there, you made a good cast. And we had and a shot. We had a shot. I mean, but seriously, in the first three minutes we were on this river, we saw a 40 inch musky. And we're like, oh my God. Oh my. And the day ended up being. Awesome. I mean, we had, I think we saw six muskie. Paul and I both landed one. <laughs> yeah, Rex is like, I'm just going to quit right now. I mean, this doesn't ever happen. It's you catch a muskie in your first day of fly fishing for him. You're like, I've never even been on a river with muskie in it. <laughs> yeah. I like, I literally never fished even around muskie and I caught one. Yeah. I mean, it was just super cool. Incredible, incredible day. And then it was just straight back to sprinting along on the road. Went to the Nashville show. Those guys showed up. We had an absolute blast there. Jared from Fly Lords joined us there for a couple shows. So he rode with us through Atlanta. So we did Nashville and then went over to Charleston. Uh, after Charleston, we had, I don't know what, like three or four days. <laughs> did some interesting stuff with our adipose. Didn't really, weren't really all that plugged into bunch of guys that could really take us fishing, but a bunch of guys that would tell us where to go. So And all we had is a adipose drift boat. 
with no motor or anything. So what was you? All we had was a fourteen thousand dollar drift boat. <laughs> I'm not complaining. All right. I love right. that thing. Yeah. I had yeah, a great time with what we did. But yeah, anyway, so we got put on you know, on this really cool spot and we rode out. The first thing someone said to us as we were going out there in the boat was like, I'd hate to be one of those poor sons of <laughs> like This is in the intercoastal <laughs> waterway. Yeah. Waterway. So we're we threw the adipose in the salt. It's blowing like 15, 20 knots. And we're like, ah, it'll be all right. We'll figure it out. <laughs> and we're just getting blown all the way down the intercoast. We'll be like, this rowback is going <laughs> to suck. <laughs> and we, we had a shot. We actually had shots. I mean, it was really, really windy. The visibility in the water was not good. But saw a couple fish tailing, got cast. I mean, it was awesome. It was super cool putting a drift boat in, in the salt and like no one. So we, did, we tried to catch redfish one day. Then we tried to catch shad another day, like in true and true central South Carolina Americana. And though we don't have any recordings of these guys targeting redfish or shad, in about five weeks, we'll cover both these species in several upcoming episodes. So make sure to keep your eyes peeled for that. <laughs> I mean, really, I wouldn't say as blue collar as what we saw in the Dewaji hack, but different type of blue collar. Uh, got skunk there. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was fun. We had a good time. We were We brought our adipose, <laughs> rode up this this kind of slack water river right under a dam, and we're standing on the adipose with an anchor down, sw throwing switch rods, while these guys in blue jeans and boots were out there throwing shrimp on bear hooks. Cook shrimp. <laughs> so cook shrimp you buy at the store. <laughs> I mean, we, we definitely got some looks out there. Didn't catch we had some anything. good conversation with those guys across the river, too. They were in a good mood. Those guys caught way more fish than we did, too. Yeah, man. They were pulling in. So, from Charleston, we went down to Atlanta. Jared left us at that point. And then our friend Sanford, who, who guides with us in Alaska, jumped on the tour for the next 10 days or so. <laughs> did our Atlanta show. Whoa, let's not miss out on, on some of the Atlanta stuff because it was a different kind of place. I was good. And it did, that was a really good show. And had a bunch of drinks. And then all of a sudden we're sitting, uh, we're standing in this like circle and we meet one of Frank's friends and he tells Rex this crazy story. <laughs> so, and I, I hadn't met, I, this guy didn't even introduce himself to me before hearing this story. He's kind of like, this is my first interaction with him. And he, he starts it off with kind of eyeing these guys on the other side of the room being like, ah, those guys are, those guys are giving me some weird looks. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, they know I did something bad, but they can't, they can't actually prove I did it. <laughs> like, what do you mean? And, like, he's pointing over at these guys who work at a fly shop. Like, what What did this guy do? And so he, he's kind of shy about it and just, he's like, so, have you guys heard of Lake Lanier? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a huge striped bass fishery in the southeast. Like, it, one of the bigger uh, lakes that is stocked with gigantic stripers. So, big fishery. He's like, well, so they have a big tournament there every year. It was a couple weeks ago. So this guy, and he didn't really tell us why he did it or why he wasn't even just fishing in the tournament, but he chose not to be in it. And in the lead up to the tournament, realized that he could kind of stir up some shit. So the way he decided to go about this was the morning of the tournament, he bought like 50 bags of popcorn and loaded up. All these bags of popcorn on his boat prior to prior to the tournament, like bell drop, and drove out to some harbor or some bay where you could you could see it from the from the actual marina launch, but you couldn't really like know what was actually happening. So he goes out there first thing and dumps these fifty bags of popcorn all throughout this bay. And I mean, anywhere that there's seagulls, if you throw a bunch of food around, they're gonna go absolutely ape shit. So this guy basically causes a huge ruckus with all the seagulls just dive bombing this bay. And everyone's kind of eyeing it from the uh, from the tournament launch. There's fish blitzing like crazy over there. Look at the birds, they're diving on bait. It's gonna be a race to this spot. So horn sounds and literally half of the fleet goes bombing over to this bay only to find that it's just the entire thing is just covered with popcorn 
And there's seagulls just going absolutely berserk. And he's sitting over on the bank just smiling to himself. Like, I got those fuckers. <laughs> just so good. And he was like, yeah, you know, I feel kind of bad. Like, you guys mind if I just go up on stage and just kind of like, well, so you guys know that tournament? Well, well, it was me. <laughs> it was so good. I, the way he described it, like his whole it demeanor, was more of a plot then. I think he was just having a good time with it. He was like, you know what? I'm just gonna just gonna go fuck with these guys. Cool, Atlanta. We're, we were ready to move on from it pretty quick, so we got up first thing, and like the next destination we had was Fayetteville, Arkansas. And anyone that fishes, not anyone, but if you're familiar with trout fishing in the Southeast, you've heard of the White River. And if you haven't heard of the White River, go check out Elliot's podcast about the White River. It's a bit like kissing your sister. (laughs) You're not going to tell anyone, are you? By the time I'd finished that three-quarters of a mile dive, everything I'd ever thought, read, seen, I went, this is bullshit. I mean, streamer fishing is for the 30-something ADD child. I mean, it's nonstop, go, 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 don't stop, you know? <laughs> None of us got into this game because fly fishing was easy. We got into it because it was a challenge. That was a short clip from episode number 11, Big Streamers, Bigger Fish, which follows the rise of fly fishing for trophy browns on the White River. You guys should listen to it. So, it's... Paul Sanford and myself at this point, and we wake up the next morning, and it's roughly a, it's roughly a twelve-hour drive, and we it basically if we get over that night, it gives us two full days to fish before we have to go to Fayetteville and put on our shows. So we finish this drive off, and we get out there like eight thirty, and at this point, like we were paying attention to the conditions. This is like two weeks after the shad kill. The whole thing with the white is that they've got a huge generation schedule where they'll pump like 20,000 CFS of water out of the dam. And it's absolutely enormous. If you hit it right, there's a big shad kill that comes through the dam. So the big, big browns all gorge on these big shad. So that was not going on. We just missed that. So we figured these fish were kind of not that interested in streamers. The water is at like 750 CFS, so really small for that river. And it was also just sheer coincidence, Salbug weekend, which is some huge, huge tying event in the area. So in Cotter, they've got like a thousand different people that come out to it. So it was a weekend. So everyone and their mothers was on the White River this weekend. And we knew it when we got there. So we were looking at the conditions being like, all right, it's low water. There's everyone here. The fishing just can't be that good during the day. The conditions are awesome for night fishing. Let's just throw the boat in the water and just see what happens. So <laughs> we just drive straight up, like literally throw our bags in a room, drive straight over to the river. Oh, by the time we got to the river and like we're putting the boat in the water, it was 1030. Yeah. And so, so Sanford had done this a month and a half prior, like right, right as the season had opened. So he had ex- at least done it at night, but Paul and I had no idea what the hell we were in for. And keep in mind, when he did it before, it wasn't good. He did it for like four nights and, and moved like 10 fish. So our expectations were not crazy high, but I mean, the conditions seemed great. So we put the boat in the water, go down to this first run, and night fishing down there. How much do we want to talk about? <laughs> are we just full on? Um, I mean, I don't care. <laughs> Let's, I think we could just probably keep it to the point where... You know, we all the photos happen. It, it really, it really, it just started off with us fishing mouse patterns. Sanford really was doing that. I it started off tonight catching a couple fish on streamers, and immediately we knew, like, okay, we can catch fish and not see what we're doing at all. We don't know how we're casting. We don't know what it looks like. But if you strip it in the right way, you might catch a fish. It was a weird experience. It was super trippy. We were all saying, like, trying to row down the river. Your whole depth perception is just completely thrown off. It started by putting into that first run. Sanford and I threw mice basically to start the run, fishing from the bank. And then Paul followed us up with a streamer and hooked like three fish. We're like, holy shit. We can get them. This is actually working. What the hell? Yeah. And so we get back in the boat and start floating down. We leave the front guy with a mouse, back guy with a streamer. And the front guy going into this first run, just basically the tail out of the one we just wade fished. Dude. Bam. Got lit up. Non-stop. I mean, you're hearing just... Bowling balls. I stopped casting. On our mice. I stopped fishing. 
It was crazy. Was like, and so, like, the first run, we got, like, 12 blow-ups on mice within, like, 150 yards. I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is on. Like, this is the real deal. And so, like, that, that first night was our best night. We, we didn't keep track of numbers. We don't know. We just based it off the last night because... For us, every once in a while in Alaska, you'll have a client who's like, I would love to know how many fish I caught today. And I'm not going to sit there and let someone take a freaking counter that an umpire would use in, like, Little League Baseball and let them, like, click away the numbers. No, like, the fun, creative way to do it that keeps me sane is by using the alphabet to name all the names of fish. Ladies, ladies first. So we started off with lady names. And then we went through and it was, you know, you go Alfreda, and then we're Brittany, Carly, and the next thing we know... We're at like Zephyr for girls that were like, holy crap, dude, we're crushing these fish right now. So the last night we actually counted through the alphabet and I think we landed, how, how many fish did we actually land? It was 13 for 34 the last night. So you're not landing a lot of these fish. Now that's an important thing to realize. Like, I think it's easy to be someone listening to this conversation to be like, how do you really know those were fish? And a lot of these are short strikes. You feel the fish, hit it, it's we're still. casting and it's dead quiet and there's very little wind. And, and honestly, we, I mean, we proved after hooking fish after a while, like those same noises and sounds and feelings we were getting when we hooked up with fish and landed them were the same, same ones we were getting when we weren't. And a lot of them, you're not going to see whatsoever. You're not going to feel whatsoever, but you hear something rolling out where your fly roughly is. The joke was, like, we'd literally be <laughs> yeah. floating down the river and we hear something explode like, oh, something just got killed. Oh, something just died. Dude, it was, it was happening that <laughs> First night was our best night, hands down. The conditions just were incredible for it. It was like, it was super warm. It was super overcast, just perfect. And we hit it really, really well. Second night, cold and clear. It was slower. It was noticeably slower. Third night was very good as well. And we had kind of mixed conditions throughout the night. But I mean, we, again, based on that last night's actual hard numbers, we raised over 100 fish. I mean, you, and I don't know how many we actually landed, but I mean, it was insane. To really, to put it the best way possible, I'm just going to quote my friend Sanford here. After these three incredible nights of fishing, he goes, Isn't it remarkable that you guys have fished the White River for three days and you've never seen it? We, we, we have no idea what the river looked like when we were fishing. And we, I mean, what did we use as references? It was like lights on docks dock and lights. certain areas where we were like, okay, it's this getting is, really shallow. This is a riffle. This, this is, is one riffle. of This is one of three riffles you go through. <laughs> it was such a different way to look at fishing. Like it's not as it's not visual. It was more about your sense of feeling and, and listening and just paying attention. It was really kind of a calming way to fish, obviously until fish hit and then it was just straight chaos. I mean... I really hope that people that do listen to this might know someone who maybe has never gone fishing or ever thought about going outdoors because they're really kind of like it's maybe a barrier in their life. But it, it, if you learn how to cast, you don't need to be able to see what you're doing. You really can pay attention to your senses. And it is that was one of my favorite, easily my best night of fishing in my entire life, those three nights. We were all saying it. And we've spent a lot of time fishing around this country, Alaska, South America, Sanford included. And it was probably the most remarkable stint of fly fishing any of us have had in the lower 48. It was I, so unique. It was just, it was like nothing else. It's totally uncomparable to any other thing that we had all done. I'm sure there's fisheries out there that you can go throw streamers for bass or do God knows what in the night, but... For us, for trout fishing, that was, for me at least, one of the cool. I'll the, second that. Yeah, the coolest trout fishing I've done in the lower 48. So go mouse fishing, even if you're not on the White River in Arkansas. Try it somewhere else. So have you heard the whole night bite debate? I don't think so. Okay, um, I don't know enough about it, but it's there's a push that the fish are getting so much pressure in the day that they need that 12 hours at night. And this push isn't necessarily on the White River, but I've seen a kind of national dialogue about whether or not we should be targeting fish at night across the country. And so there's like the, I've seen the hashtag, like the night bite doesn't count or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And so I get where they're coming from. What, what are your thoughts on all of that? I didn't really think about that. Um, I, like we said, we haven't really seen the White River during the day. I don't know what the, I mean, we were alone. It we, was us. We did it talk was about us it. us and us alone on the river. Like, I, I don't really know 
how that kind of pressure does impact those fish. Maybe that's a really good point. I, I didn't consider that before. So our feelings while we were doing this, because we did talk about it, was a lot of a lot of these fish that we were raising during the night, we figured were just straight up hunkered down during the day. These are often just nocturnally feeding fish that with the water being the level it was, that they are just not, the pressure doesn't matter for them throughout the day because they're not going to eat. They're not even going to look at anything. They're going to sit behind a rock and just hide because that river's clear and when it's low, bury themselves. So that was kind of our stance. I mean, it was at least what we were saying at the time and I still kind of think that. They're nocturnal feeders, so a lot of them are. And there is some science to support this idea. Back in episode number six of the podcast, I spoke with Professor Jim Diana about some brown trout tracking that he did back in the 90s on Michigan's Osable River. So here's a clip from episode number six that outlines Diana's research methods and what he learned about brown trout behavior. They'd electrofish an area of the stream until they captured a brown trout over 40 centimeters. They'd then anesthetize the fish, make a small incision, and then insert a tiny radio transmitter inside the fish. They'd glue the cut back together, wait for the fish to wake up, and then let it swim back to its hidey hole. Uh, and that allowed us to follow much more free-ranging fish um, and not necessarily fish that were kind of in one location. Now, with the transmitters implanted, Dr. Diana and company had to track these fish. And they did so by carrying this big antenna around until they got a ping back, letting them know that the marked fish was within 200 meters of them. So in a series of studies, we found that the large brown trout tended to remain relatively inactive during the day. Then in the evening, start moving, um, oftentimes move really long distances, sometimes several miles up and down stream, um, and then often return in the morning to the same piece of cover they were in before. Sometimes we would find brown trout that would get out of cover, move some distance, and then come back. And we felt that they probably had been successful at eating something, and so they were done for the day. And others that continued to move, and we felt that most likely they hadn't been able to find prey, and so were continuing to forage. Combined with some other research, Dr. Diana gave me some even more specific intel. Well, I think the actual timing that's probably most important is morning and evening. Um, and there's a pretty good literature out there that says a lot of predators take advantage of their prey during the time when their behavior shifts from being out and active during the day and hiding at night. And so in between those times, they're moving to different areas, their vision isn't as good, and the belief is they're more vulnerable to predators. So I think that the brown trout are keying really on those two times, um, but then, you know, continuing through the night. To sum it up, big browns tend to move at night meaning the fish that Paul and Rex were catching might not be the same fish being caught during the day. Granted, this was a small study on a different river in a different part of the country 20 years ago. Back to Paul and Rex. That's a really good point, man. But I still think, like, back to his point, like, how does that affect the fishery, right? Like, is, is that a positive thing to be able to target fish, I mean, like, 24 hours a day? Like, is it, like, where do you draw the line? <laughs> what does the line even look like? I mean... It's so relative, right? I mean, there's it is. probably 150 boats floating 15 miles during the day. We were one. We were a single boat. Well, what if it gets to the point of that it's 75-25? The pressure, pressure hasn't changed. You're just targeting different fish. It becomes Hopefully. more... And we were all curious to hear what a local biologist had to say about this. So I reached out to a local biologist, Christy Graham the trout management biologist for the local area wasn't able to speak on the phone, but she did send me an email, which I had my roommate Megan read. Numerous reasons for opposition have been cited, included safety issues and concerns about spotlighting, targeting big brown trout. That being said, we, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, have no biological evidence at this time to suggest that night fishing for trout is detrimental in any way. Rather, we currently view it as an additional fishing opportunity for those so inclined to brave the late nights and dense fogs in hopes of catching a big fish. Over the next few years, we hope to get a better idea of the number of people who fish at night and the numbers of trout being caught and or harvested at night. Based on our observations from working at night on the rivers, we anticipate that effort, catch, and harvest of trout will be far less at night than what we see during the day. 
Thank you, Megan. And the okay. interesting thing about what we did and what we saw, you see photos of 30-inch fish coming out of the white. We did not land anything over 21 inches. We heard a couple of splashes that you could imagine that they were bigger than 30 inches, but we never hooked up on anything. I mean, you get a sense, right? Like if yeah. you raise 100 fish, you land a third of them. You get an idea of what the sound is to the fish that you land. There were a couple noises that were just straight up different. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, whoa. <laughs> whoa, that was big. But like we, that happened maybe four times. And so our average fit, our average was awesome, but it was, I mean, it was 16 to 21 inches probably. And very consistently in that range with the occasional, like Paul said, the occasional blowout that sounded just big. But I, I don't know what the trick is to get those 25 to 34s, which we all know are in that river. We did not, as far as we know, we did not interact with them. These big browns tend to feed when there's high water as well. And so that's arguable that that's just targeting a high productivity feeding time for them, as is night. And if there's no water moving through there, you can either put on a San Juan worm in one of the most poorly tied zebra midges in the world and catch a boatload of stalker rainbows. Even the guys in Dallies, they were they were showing us photos on, of 22-inch fish let's talk about like, the, during the gay fish. caddis bites. Let's talk about the giant fish. That we okay, so the next show that we had in Fayetteville, Arkansas, after we'd had this fishing trip, a gentleman came up and showed us a picture of a brown trout that was caught during the day, the same week we fish at the same low water of a brown trout that was over thirty inches. It was like twenty seven. It wasn't okay. Well, I'm sorry. Sorry. It was huge. You I mean, know how was, people take fish pictures today. Sometimes a 27-inch fish looks like it could be 30. It was one of those It was huge. Those brown trout that people go down there to seek because they truly are monsters that are just very unique to that river system. But still, that being said, those fish will still feed at those water levels. I don't know how consistently, but that guy proved that you can. My reaction is I don't think that's that's like a that's just kind of like a a nitpicker thing. You're you're making an argument out of nothing, type of deal, right? Sure. They, like these fish are going to get pressured. They get pressured, whether it's one extra boat in the middle of the night, or it's all during the day, or thirty seventy. I, some fish are going to wise up to it, and some fish are still going to eat. Kind of my feeling on it. I mean, I I don't think our the way we were fishing was all that impactful. This seems like a logical spot for a break. When we come back, we'll hear about fishing Colorado, a couple breakdowns on the highway, our experiences on the Pacific Ocean in California, and we'll even get to hear Paul do some freestyle rapping. Stick around. This episode of the Drake Cast is sponsored by our friends at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. I called up Tom Melvin, Yellow Dog's director of sales, to chat about a trip he just got back from. So I went up north in Canada, all the way up to the Northwest Territories, kind of right below the Arctic Circle. We were running around the jet boats and also utilizing float plane aircraft, fishing for some of the largest lake trout, archar, and grayling you can find you know, anywhere in the world. It's a great trip for the anglers that are looking to really head to a, a truly kind of remote, untouched portion of Canada and just be able to see kind of that, that country and that environment so close to the Arctic Circle is, is very unique. It's an unbelievable experience, something I'd highly recommend to anybody. Give us a call here at Yellow Dog or visit us online at yellowdogflyfishing.com. And remember, while there's a lot of ways to get there, there's only one way to do it right. We're also sponsored by the good folks at Scott Fly Rods. I grew up using my grandpa's old fly fishing gear that was from the 80s. And when I bought my first fly rod of my own, I did a bunch of research and ended up going with a 9.5 foot, 8 weight Scott Radiant. I love that rod. And it's still my go-to for salmon, steelhead, and anything warm water. This February, I snapped the tip off while on the White River, and Scott had it back to me in three weeks. If you're looking for high-quality rods that lend themselves well to overly sentimental attachment and great customer service, look no further than Scott Fly Rods. Check them out at scottflyrod.com. Alrighty, onto the show. So you guys do a couple shows in Fayetteville. Sounds like you had a good time. And then you had... 72 hours to get up to Aspen, Colorado? Not even. It was a day and a half. So we had, we had to 48 hours to get to Aspen. 
Yeah, I think we drove straight to Boulder. So finished the Fayetteville shows and basically sprinted to Boulder, did a restock that morning, and then straight up to our Aspen show. Hell of a show, great crowd over there. I mean, it's Colorado, a lot of fishy people. So that was a really good time. Then we had two days there. Yeah, we fished the Roaring Fork for a day, which was for two days, which were pretty incredible. I mean, I'm sure you can speak to that quite a bit, but it was, it really was uh, an amazing couple days of fishing. Yeah, for a couple of us, it was our first time actually fishing in Colorado, which was awesome. Um, obviously heard tons about it. And actually being able to get on a river that was kind of, by no means peak, but definitely fishing well, uh, we had an awesome time. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just a great bite. So we did really, really well there. Saw a couple different fisheries, and yeah, I just had a blast in Colorado. We didn't make any on-the-water recordings during our time in Colorado. Taylor Creek, this is John. So I decided to call up Taylor Creek Fly Shop in Basalt, Colorado, right on the confluence of the Frying Pan and Roaring Fork Rivers. Just a moment, let me see if I have somebody who can do that with you. Right. This is Justin, how can I help you? This is Justin Moore, and he's the one that pointed us to our fishing spots. So we had a lot of debate about how good our day of fishing was. Like, if 100 is the best conditions ever on that river and zero is full, blown out, absolutely no, no chance to catch a fish. Like, where in between those two do you think our day was? Uh, that's uh that's up for debate man <laughs> that's what how you i guess how you choose how what your perfect day on the on the river is you know to one guy catching one beautiful rainbow on a dry fly in that section could be a hundred for him you know um catching a fish alone in that section can be a hundred i mean i would say you got your way up there i mean you one catching fish up in that section is not easy um as you definitely a uh, section of water where you have to be stealthy and a lot of sight fishing and you know, um, you know, hooking on fish before your indicator, if you were indicator fishing, would even think about moving. And but the fact that you're catching fish on dries, nymphs, um, and streamers is, I'd say it's pretty good, man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, just being being up in that section is a uh, is already special enough. And the reason I asked Justin this is because this river was fishing pretty darn well the day we were on it, and we just wanted to see how it normally performs, putting our egos aside. I asked Justin how the fishing has been lately. Starting to kind of see the first waves of runoff. Um, so the unfortunately, our you know the freestone isn't fishing as well. Even though you know the shoulder, you can still fish, you know banks and things like that. But uh, it's definitely getting some color into it now. Um, but prior to this, I mean, it was probably the best blueing all patch we've ever seen. You know, starting you know early signs of spring, it was just pretty insane. Some of guys who've been here for 20 plus years have said it's the best they've seen so far so um we had some pretty lights out fishing kind of leading up to this but uh the fry pan we're starting to see blueing olives starting to hatch uh, kind of throughout the entire river now um i wouldn't say they're heavy but they are definitely here so large midges are still hatching consistently on the pan so we're still fishing dries plenty nymph fishing is been really good um especially kind of before the runoff you know we were starting to fish stone flies and a lot of caddis patterns prince nymphs were just lights out for a while but now we're kind of not fishing it as much but um we're thinking that this runoff period is definitely going to be shorter uh than longer obviously because of the snowpack so and how about that green drake hatch that i hear about so often don't come here. It's not the best. <laughs> no, uh, it's you know it's lights out, man. I mean it's uh, it's the bona fide lightning round. Um, I've I've never experienced a lightning round anywhere else. Uh, wait, wait. Can can you tell me what the lightning round is? Sure. Yeah, it's kind of that last hour of daylight there to leading up to the last you know 30 minutes of you can where you can actually see can be you know it's a uh, just a sea of rising heads. It's pretty pretty incredible just to watch more than anything. But uh, the fishing, uh, you know, you better have uh, two full things of dry shake and be ready and have a couple extra flies ready to tie on because it can get pretty crazy out there. There's that short last little bit of light that you get. I mean, we even fish with headlamps past when the sun goes down and still catch fish on Drake. So um, if that's not saying something, I don't know what it is. <laughs> and when will you start to see those Drakes popping off? 
near the beginning of July is kind of when we start seeing the first wave. Um, but you know, it, it differs every year. Every you know, every every year is, is different as far as amount of water. So. So from what I've heard, the Aspen Valley didn't get as much snow as people were hoping this last year. Um, is there a chance that that will affect river conditions later on in the season? Potentially. You know, you never know. We did get some late moisture. Um, here, I actually got the email today, from my understanding, from the Roaring Fork Conservancy on snowpack. And let's see. This is uh, from the May 3rd. Roaring Fork watershed is currently 62% of normal. For this time of year, blah, 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 blah. So, it, you know, as far as affecting it, it could potentially affect it, you know, midsummer. You know, we're, we, we're not fishing as late on the Roaring Fork due to the water temperature and putting stress on the fish. But it could, for, the, for leading up to that, it could be some of the best dry fly fish. You should just, oh, uh, I would say, uh, make sure you guys look at our, our fishing reports online at taylorcreek.com. We pretty much update those almost daily um, and they're pretty extensive as well so um, definitely worth worth the time at checking out back to Paul and Rex the original plan was to fish Colorado for three days we decided to call it early so we could go sightseeing in Utah got to arches saw arches it was incredible and Elliot was with us again at this point so it was me Paul Sanford finally back Again, finally reunited, you know, we're, we're all there in Aspen together, got to go fishing, got to hang out. And, uh, that was a cool decision that day to go down south. I'm glad we, we did we it. We were just going to book it all the way over to California and try to hang out on the beach, but instead, especially because our friend Sanford was there and he needed to fly out of uh, Las Vegas, we decided instead of just driving straight to Las Vegas, we were going to go and explore Moab, Dead Horse State Park. The best part of the trip was... For me, at least, we decided to hop off I-70 kind of last minute. Let's go to Arches. Why not? It's beautiful. Let's do it. So we hop off there, and right there it says next service is 47 miles, and we're in this huge diesel truck with four guys towing 3,000 pounds <laughs> and a, another 1,000 pounds of gear in the truck, and we've got 52 miles until empty. <laughs> and so that is just like that added tension. And then driving through the canyon, the scenic route that follows the Colorado heading into Moab from the north was just gorgeous. It's, you follow this just, honestly, it's like a miniature Grand Canyon. It, it, that's what it is, right? That you can it's, drive through. That you can drive through, that you can actually, yeah. Beautiful red rock and there's like chartreuse green lichen everywhere and beautiful, like this time of year, everything's kind of green too. It was, it was one of those things where the windows were rolled down. It was the first warm, really warm weather we'd felt in a while. And it was just like, yeah, I'll take that risk. 52 miles to empty. Let's see what happens, you know. On our way from Colorado through the desert, we started experiencing some car troubles. Definitely slowed our roll a little bit. <laughs> that is for sure. And in just three days, we needed to be in Encinitas, California to put on a show. Long story short. I stuck back with the busted truck while Paul and Rex continued south in a rental car. We're driving in a U-Haul. There's two seats, three people. Yeah, our Yeti bucket served as a great car seat for us for about four hours. And for those of you who don't know, these are the roto-molded five-gallon buckets that Yeti sells for 40-some dollars. $30, but the lid is 40 The lid itself is 40 The lid alone is $40. Space airtight. Also gives it some pride. But it would have been, cool. you, you could have potentially lid. flipped it over and sat on the bottom. It wouldn't have been <laughs> as comfortable. No, it wouldn't have. But in any case, we're in a U-Haul. We have probably two-thirds of our gear so we can put on the show, drive to San Diego, and put on two shows in Encinitas and Santa Ana back-to-back -back days. Great shows. Uh, really cool area. Met a whole bunch of cool Southern California folk. Calico Syndicate was out. Uh, great group of guys there. Yeah, they were doing a cool fundraiser, too, for a local guy that lost all of his belongings in one of the California fires last fall. So it was just it was a cool experience being out there and just kind of hanging out with those guys. At that point, we stayed in 
just south of Los Angeles, waited for Elliot to kind of come back and meet us. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, the car gets fixed in Cedar City, Utah. I get everything going, drive on down, cruising past Las Vegas, and about 10 miles outside of Las Vegas, big <laughs> sound comes from under the hood, and I start losing power. Once again, following our protocol of uh, pull over, turn the car off, turn it back on, <laughs> the car is not getting out of first gear. So I spent the next three hours on the side of the freeway, got a tow truck, spent a couple nights in Las Vegas. Breakdown number two. This time it was the hose connecting the turbo to the engine. Obviously, I don't know anything about cars just by the way I phrased that. But we get that done, and finally I meet you guys down in just south of L.A. We're putting the band back together. Forget it. No way. We're on a mission from God. Again, back at full force, we readied ourselves for a couple days of fishing the Pacific coast. Day one in Long Beach Harbor with Captain Vaughn Podmore, which you'll actually be able to read about in an upcoming issue of the magazine. The next day, we cruised down south to hit San Diego Sound with the guys from the Fly Stop, which you'll hear about at another time. So right now, we're going to skip ahead to recording just after our last show of the whole tour where we'll share some final thoughts and what these guys are going to be up to in the near future. Uh, then we boogied up to Sacramento the following day, put on a first-time show up there. Uh, ended up being a really good crowd, obviously not having much of a fly fishing film tour following in that area. We did really well, awesome venue, uh, great group of guys out there. We had a bunch of coaster reps, a couple of the uh, guides in the area come out. So that was great, um, and it was the last one, which was pretty awesome, kind of surreal. Yeah, what did you feel after like we packed up from the end of that show? It didn't really hit me until we got to the hotel at like 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, because as soon as we, we took off from the theater, we were still in go mode. <laughs> it didn't feel like that was it, like just go home and close the door, you know, it's... It was like, we, we have to go drive another six or seven hours. It felt like we were still on tour. It was a weird blend, right? So it was, like, we all acknowledged it was the last show. It was like a quick quick breakdown, which is unusual for us. So we were all really happy about that. But yeah, just sitting in the car. I mean, there, there wasn't, there was some talk of kind of the full sentimental feeling of like what we'd gone through in the last three months. And that was all well and good. But it really didn't hit me that we were done, done until we... Got in our hotel room at 2.33 in the morning. You're like, all right, let's, let's get up at 7 and start driving again. <laughs> oh, my God. There was, there was always another destination or activity in front of us. Even after the shows were done, it was like, oh, well, we still have to drive back to Boulder and drop off all the stuff. And it really hasn't hit me until right now that you guys are leaving at 4.30 in the morning on a shuttle to the airport. <laughs> and I'm leaving at like midnight uh just going completely separate ways yeah it's weird it's kind of it's kind of shitty i mean we had our two-week break during during the tour where elliot you were in china and even then that felt strange kind of splitting up the band um yeah this is going to be a little bit longer i mean we we're heading up to alaska here pretty shortly you're you're pretty locked up for me so this is the last time the gang's getting together for i mean maybe we'll come up with something in may but probably not till next fall, maybe yeah. even next tour. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it's a shitty thought. <laughs> it is because it's been it's been really fun spending a lot of time together, and uh, we all pissed each other off at many points throughout <laughs> the tour. Oh, yeah. But uh, always hugged it out and uh, got back on the water and had good times. So what's next for you guys? Waking up first thing in the morning, we're heading down to the Bahamas. We're going to fly to Nassau and then spend about a week fishing for bonefish on Andros. We've got a, a lodge we're going to go go to, and we've uh, we've got a couple other friends that are going to be joining us, and it'll be the first time uh, where we get to stay in one place in about three and a half months. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. We The longest stint we had in any one location was Tom's house. That was five nights, but we, every single day we drove a minimum of 45 minutes, right? Fish. So, I mean, <laughs> like, given we slept in the same place, but we didn't, we weren't in the same place by any means at all. 
So yeah, it's it's gonna be weird. It's gonna <laughs> we're, be we're gonna have a home base. We're not gonna be getting in a car, which is gonna be awesome. Yeah, pretty surreal. It's been a really quick turnaround. Like I mean, we we kind of touched on it, but we had our show what Thursday night. It's now Saturday night. <laughs> Dude, they don't feel like. I feel like that was yesterday. Uh, yeah, really. They really like blend nothing. together, don't they? Yeah, I mean, we even we dealt with a highway getting shut down on us. It's been a whole bunch of crap, um, and then a whole big breakdown today. So it's really, it's now happening now <laughs> that we're finally kind of wrapping up shop, and the Bahamas will be great. And then it gives us roughly three to four weeks after the Bahamas before at least Paul and I head back up to Alaska and start our four months straight of guiding. So this this next month is going to be great for at least us two. I know you've got a whole bunch whole bunch of things going on. Yeah, man. Tell us yeah. about what you're doing. <laughs> no, nobody cares about that. I really do. No, it's got to keep it a mystery. Fair enough, yeah. You don't want to keep, like, keep the people guessing. <laughs> yeah, it's, you can't show the whole nipple. <laughs> <laughs> Just the tip. Just like where do you guys guide up in Alaska and what, what kind of... Because there's a million fisheries up there. There's a million different operations. What exactly are you guys doing? So uh, we work in the Lake Iliamna area, which is just west of Anchorage. Um, you can only really get to most of those places by uh, flying in a plane. It's roughly two hours. Um, we fish uh, a lot of the tributaries into Lake Iliamna, and we specifically target the rainbow trout in those systems. They have one of the largest sockeye runs in the entire world, and we fish behind those salmon and target the rainbow trout that feed on not only their eggs, but also their fry. Um, so we get to do that for four months, which is totally crazy adventure. Working for New Halen Lodge. We, we left that part out. Yep. Yeah. New Halen Lodge, which is on Six Mile Lake, so like Paul said, uh, just outside of Lake Iliamna. It's, it's a crazy four months. We do fly out practically every single day we can. Basically, no days off. Even the days you're not guiding, you're doing something. Bears everywhere, wolves, eagles, all sorts of salmon. I mean, you, you really get the full gamut of things up there. And it's it's a grind. Uh, but, I mean, you're grinding in probably the most spectacular fishery in the world. So, it makes it a little bit easier. And you travel by plane. That's, that's one of, the, I think, the most unique things about being up there is being able to jump in a plane that was built in the 50s. And it's still still takes off you still fly in crazy conditions but no matter what you get to really see a lot of alaska and just to take that a step further from the stories that you've told me like you'll strap inflatable rafts to the sides of these old planes like on the floats fly out 40 minutes somewhere get dropped off hike that raft across a mile of tundra put it in the river and then row your clients down to pick up point x and then fly out like it's it's pretty gnarly it's not yeah i mean that's <laughs> it's pretty spot on while you're at the lodge it's pretty cushy as soon as you step on that plane or get on a jet boat it gets super wild really really quickly mm. like here we're often i mean the flights are often very crazy um you're weaving through fog clouds dealing with weather wind all sorts of crazy stuff and you get put down on these places where it is truly wild and like you you don't really have backup there's usually you got two guides on the river so you have like your support system with your other guide but i mean you're out there on your own and whatever is thrown at you so i mean there's been days where where it's hailed we've had to deal with 60 knot winds on the river broken boats i mean pop rafts just all sorts of crazy stuff and i mean it's just kind of roll with the punches and make sure everyone gets home safe and has a good time doing it um it, i mean it's it's wild, though. I mean, it is the Wild West of the modern era, if you will. I feel very privileged that we have an opportunity to experience what that is. Because I don't think I can really explain it to people. I think that you have to kind of go up there and and, and really try to do it yourself and learn. Um, learn by failure. <laughs> and sometimes really costly failure, not like the kind of failure that, you know, is like, Oh well, I broke my phone. I won't do that the next time. It's like okay, you can't, you know, can't drive a boat like that. Or the next time you're going around that bend, like you got to be on time. If the weather gets shitty, you need to fly out. Those are hard lessons to learn in most places. Yeah, I mean it's it's the real deal, and it's, pictures never do it justice. 
there's bears everywhere. The glaciers are unbelievable. And I mean, it's, it's wild up there. I mean, there's a lot of pressure involved with it, but I mean, that's part of the job and it's part of what makes it so special. Not everyone can handle it. And we're fortunate to be able to go back and do it again next year. Paul and Rex had a great time in the Bahamas. If you'd like to see some of their photos, hop onto our website, drakemag.com. It's there that you'll also see a few other pics from our time on the road. And I guess that's it. The road trip is now over. Paul and Rex are prepping for Alaska, and I'm heading back to the Midwest for the summer. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to start another miniseries that will track my trip from the Florida Keys all the way up to Washington, D.C. We'll talk about tarpon, redfish, brookies, stripers, wipers, Kentucky spotted bass, shad, and everything in between. So that's it. Hey Rex, you mind killing the music? We're, we're recording some sick beats here. Thanks, man. Cool, yeah, and try to just do right into the tip. <laughs> Alright. It's kind of really hard for me to understand the job When you tell me to write things down But I don't understand to solve the issues and the situations Call it the problem It doesn't matter cause I'm fishing tomorrow Let's solve it This is the equations The things in life that you need to solve Look at me before you're taken out With your own resolve Because I'm moving on the road from day to day I know I gotta feel it before I understand the flow Let's go This is the fishing on the program Dream like you know I'm on the road with F3T Because you know how it goes This ain't the dream This ain't the f***ing job this is what I'm doing today cause tomorrow fuck it, I got no job So I take a fucking breath, look at you and I set the hook Because the stripper's not gonna do the do I keep on moving from one place to the next Because I never understand where I need to fit in Place, reset the cast and understand your freaking dreams Coasters on the scene with the 580p They're trying to get us to the equations, let me know what I need They want some Sims products, I'll tell you how to freaking feed Fish with no chum, you need to hit that double weight Do a two-hand cast with your buddy Brian Porter, wait Rubber dub tub, we got four men in an adipose tub Wait, don't stop, let's hear the moment Don't hit till the dub hits the track in the Mac Because his base hits the trouble before your mind needs to attack I had a freaking dream when I had to freaking see I looked back into the equation before I knew that I could be Bigger than before because this life is about Find your own stage before you feel your own doubt Because this life doesn't give back, you can't even know I'm thinking about my freaking F3T crew So let's go, right, RT you know Because the Doug is the flow We got Chris Keg on the microphone like the flow He doesn't really matter cause he's cutting like the edit man Because he's so past the reddit he can't even read the reddit fan Mex Rex is out of the shower like what? He's coming out with no shirt on and that's the truth so what what? We live together so it doesn't really matter we see All the things in between the lines even if you hate me so please just take a freaking breath and understand that it's life you looked at me the right way and too bad you can't even write down what you saw yesterday before you're proud to be the baby before the day before you need to sway give me the f3 f3 doo -doo 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 moody cuz I'm <laughs> all right that's all I got on that one <laughs> that's great man <laughs> f3t road crew out Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.